0: Hello again. It's actually amazing to have more often that we have a misfire here. But I'm happy to read this text to you and with you. Our Matthew 16, verses 13 to 28 is where we'll be. It's on page 822 in your pew Bible. If you want to look that up or look it up on your phone. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. We read this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord amen let me pray for us Jesus thank you for these words thank you for what they mean for us now what they meant for your disciples then would you grant faith now in the room while we unpack these words Uh, they are big words they are um, life-changing paradigm-shifting words they're also confronting words they're um, difficult words And you promised that they're words of life, they're words that actually save our soul, they're words that bring about the best things for us, and yet we struggle to believe the same way Peter struggled to believe in this moment. So I just ask that you would meet us, that you would help us. For all the things that we think and feel about you already, would you encounter us with the truth of who you are? Would you change our understanding of who you are to line up with your word in such a way that we see you, we worship you, and we end up, wanting you, loving you, surrendering our lives to you. So would you grant faith? Would you comfort? Would you correct us? Would you help us by your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so if you were here the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series on vocation. It took four weeks to kind of talk about the story of work from the Bible and try to locate our day-to-day doings around the will of God, the person of God, and the story of God. And then we're jumping back into Matthew this week. And we've been in Matthew, actually, for like a super long time. And by my calculations, if everything goes great, we're done around June uh, with the book of Matthew. And so actually, that maybe gives me a disclaimer to start. Like, I'm going to actually summarize what should be about nine sermons and a couple of different series from these texts into one main idea, just so we can kind of move forward. I actually want to use the illustration of a, of, like, an investment strategy or an an ROI as you think about, like, what are you actually getting a return on your investment for? How do you think about kind of cost-benefit analysis? And I did some of that this week as I was wrestling with this text, and I thought about what I'm missing by leaving some things on the table. Like, literally, there are, like, whole religions and denominations formed from different interpretations of this text. And in that space, I'm just, like, not even going to touch it. And so I'm counting the cost of doing that to say, can we get out of Matthew before I die? Uh, Because we've been here for like a super long time and we've been, I think it'll be two and a half years. We have 65 other books. I'm 45 years old. We've got a long way to go. So I thought, all right, we're going to kind of summarize some of this together. So I just want to say up front then, I probably won't answer some of the questions you've had for a super long time. Uh, I'm sorry about that. The Chiefs are on at noon. We want to get out of here at some point. But if you've got questions and you're going like, hey, not funny. I actually really am struggling with certain things in here. I would love to grab a cup of coffee. I'd love to exchange some emails. So whatever question I don't answer or address that you want to talk about more, I would love to. We have other leaders who would love to talk. So I want to offer like, I care about the questions that you have. And there is a lot in this text, even though we're going to just kind of zoom across it. But as I wrestled with it several months ago and put the schedule together, what felt beautiful to me was to take these three pretty massive paragraphs and see them as one big horizon. Because there's a really common theme in this of, who do you say Jesus is and what are you going to do about that? So there's a continuity, even though they're massive and you could slow down and spend a ton of time. The main idea is actually pretty simple and it's it's a beautiful landscape. So if you can imagine like driving through the Flint Hills, you just see like miles and miles and miles. There's something beautiful about stretching out that landscape and seeing it all at one time. So I want that kind of in your mind as we jump into this text. And Jesus is going to push us to think about cost-benefit analysis. Look with me in verse 26. He just uses this word profit. He says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So he puts in front of us this question of, is it worth it? Like, how do you think about that? How do you think about the value of following Jesus, the way that you're following Jesus, and what is the kind of cost-benefit analysis that you're doing spiritually? It gives us a, a chance just to say we're, we're constantly doing ROI work. We're constantly asking, what is the return on my investment in this relationship, in my job, when it comes to chastity, when it comes to giving charitably, when it comes to the way that I'm engaging as a parent? Like like the moment of discipline, parents have to ask, like, is this worth it? Do I pull them out of the grocery store and have an hour and a half conversation in the car it's kind of hot? Or I could just give them that candy bar and we could be done with this That in a nanosecond is an ROI. You're asking, what is the return on the investment if I slow down and actually discipline this kiddo? And I think you do that all the time naturally, and it's because you're wired as a desiring being. Jesus made us who we are. He knows what's inside of our hearts, and He wants us to actually be driven by desire. So it's not simply like the arduous commitment of sacrifice to follow Jesus. He says, hey, think about what's possible. Think about the reward Think about the benefit there is in, by the way, giving everything you have away and dying to yourself. That high cost, he says, comes with eternal and present rewards, but he's appealing to how you think about a cost-benefit analysis. I want you to just have that in your mind because I wonder when it comes to following Jesus, what your life shows you value and how you're thinking about the return on your investment when it comes... Not just to come into church, like that's way too small. Your return on allegiance to Jesus. And it's possible there's places where you're struggling and maybe the idea of like stopping and examining our hearts the way we're invited to as we look over the disciples' shoulders here. Maybe there's something really valuable about just looking at your life and asking, am I investing in the right things? Am I getting the return on the investment the way I wanted to or thought? Because every sin promises a return on investment. Every way that we would pursue the flesh, every time we we respond anyway, I think you do it because of desire. You're doing it because of a fast calculation of profit and loss. The problem is it's normally just below the surface of us thinking about it. Like you don't walk around with a notepad with two columns and do a little chart before every decision. You just reflexively respond, which is part of what it means to walk by faith. And Jesus is inviting us just to ask, how do you think about the benefit and the cost of the kingdom And the benefit and cost of not being in the kingdom. Because both directions have cost. There's a cost to following Jesus. And Jesus says there's a really high cost to not following Jesus. So you don't have an option not to invest. There's no passive, just kind of sit back. You have to invest somehow, some way. And Jesus invites us to invest in what he says will last for forever and will actually fully satisfy. So that's the point of the text Now, scholars would tell us in this point here, the reason why we stopped where we did was this is a turning point in the book of Matthew. Jesus has been declaring the kingdom and he's been demonstrating the kingdom through his miracles. And now he's going to say what he's about to do to bring that kingdom in. So look with me like verse 21. It says, "For From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus has talked before about dying to ourselves and the cost of following him. This is the first time he says he's going to die. And there's a way that we actually find the good news of the gospel in this little section. But what we see in Peter's response is it's not what he expected. Like Peter's idea of the kingdom, Peter's idea of what it meant to follow Jesus, wasn't a road to surely Jesus' death or the Messiah's death. He was longing for and expecting something quite different, which gives us permission to ask, like, what are we expecting? What do we, we think God was going to do? What do we think it was like to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus? When we said no to a childhood faith or we said no to an invitation, somebody kind of laid in front of us for following after God, what do we think was going to happen? What was going to be the return on that? And this text just likes to slow down for a moment because God loves us and examine like, where are we with our desires. So I want to have that as a framework as we go through it. We're going to talk through just three C's, kind of one for Each paragraph, we're going to talk about the confession, the confusion, and the cost. So look with me in verse 13. Jesus stands in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and historians tell us a lot about this place. Um, It actually was the birthplace of several religions. It was a space where there was emperor worship going on. Even the name Philippi comes from Herod Philip, one of the, the tetrarchs, one of the leaders in that day. It was a space where people would often go to establish faith, to leverage faith. There was economic and spiritual and social and political power in this place. So it's not, a just throw away geographical comment to say Jesus is standing in the space where all these like false religions and Caesar worship was going on in that space, and he asks, who do you say I am? I actually had a chance to talk to Roxanne Adrian, who you know from tickling the ivories over here on Sunday morning, but Roxanne has a really deep faith and has walked with God for a really long time and she was sharing with me this week that she actually got to go to Israel and the Holy Lands a few years ago and the guide took them to this one spot and she said there's this really ominous cave there that the ancients believed had like demons down inside of it and worship down inside of it there was a lot going on kind of mystical sacred spaces there that had a lot of power it was a kind of a lush green area different than lots of the areas around it so it just felt like something was happening in that space it was divine it's a place that you would actually pursue God and actually that's why people would set up temples there either to be worshipped as the emperor or to worship their own deities so if you can imagine like a pluralistic lots of options lots of questions about who is God what is real what will save me because every ounce of worship is aimed at this profit loss idea what will benefit me? What will get my crops to grow? What will keep us safe? What will help us win wars? What will make my wife fertile? All those things are what people do to worship to actually manipulate the gods to give what they want. That's fascinating. To think about like the idea you have of using religion or using spirituality to get something leveraged for yourself. That's exactly what happened in pagan worship. And so in that space, Jesus asked this question of his disciples. Hey, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And we've seen already throughout the book of Matthew, like lots of answers to that. Remember that Herod thought Jesus was a ghost, the ghost of John the Baptist. And so he's making sense of the supernatural things, saying this is like a spirit. This is like a a ghost come back from the dead. We see the religious leaders have called Jesus a demon, that he's actually demon possessed. That's how he's able to do what he's doing. We've seen people that are on the outside, socially and religious, look at Jesus and call him Lord, to call him son of David we've seen lots of different ideas about who Jesus is and so Jesus asks his disciples who do people say that I am and you see some common answers here in verse 14 some say John the Baptist other Elijah other Jeremiah some of the prophets they see you Jesus as in line of like the teachers of the day you you trace kind of your message back to the prophets of old that were concerned for justice and mercy and stood against the oppression of those around and that that's a how people see you and that's a An important thing, it's a nice thing, it's actually like a complimenting sort of thing. But Jesus wants to push it a little bit deeper, not just to appreciate him, but to actually push the idea of, is there an exclusive claim to deity that he has? So he turns to disciples in verse 15 and he says, But who do you say that I am? And here's where we get the confession from Peter. Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ is a technical term. It's a term for Messiah or anointed one. It's what the Old Testament pointed to of what God was going to do to come and make everything right. So even in our vocation series, we we ended with the idea that God promises to renew all things. And part of our work is about partnering with Him in that renewal. And we looked at what are called preview passages in the Old Testament where God says the day will come when I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to dry every eye. I'm going to take all the war implements and make them farm implements. And your work will then have meaning without hostility. Those preview passages are, are messianic or, or Christ passages. One day God was going to come and send somebody that was going to come and make everything right. So Peter is saying we see you as the one the Old Testament promised was going to come all the way back in the garden, the one who's going to come and make things right with our ancient enemy, the one who's going to keep all the promises of God, the one who's actually going to come and deliver God's people. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus, who knows what kind of the look on his face was, but he turns to Peter, surely smiling, surely excited, and says, Blessed are you, Simon." And this is beautiful, he says, because flesh and blood didn't show this to you. This comes from the grace of God. We're not just left to our own devices, right? It's not just our own reasoning. God mercifully had moved towards Peter and opened up his eyes so that he could see who he was. He says, my Father who is in heaven has actually shown this to you. And then he's going to go on to talk about the implications of this confession. He says, and I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will, will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he says this confession is spot on. This is it. What you're seeing, Peter, what you're confessing me to be, is who I really am. And here's some implications to that. This confession is what I will build my church on. And as I say that, there's a lot of debate, actually, of what is this rock. Is is the rock the actual words Peter says Is it Peter himself? Is he the rock? And there's a play on words with his name and rocks and stones kind of in the ancient language there. So there's a lot of debate, and actually the Roman Catholics have said this is about Peter's office and the succession of people who come behind Peter. There's a kind of authority there that the church is is built around. And then other scholars say, no, no, it's not a person because Peter's pretty broken. He has lots of places where he's inconsistent. Even in the next chapter, Jesus is going to call him uh, influenced by Satan, which is a pretty sharp rebuke, right? It's like actually not an amazing like, uh, trend line from his first outing as the one who's building the church to, to actually now be called a messenger of Satan. So, so maybe it's not about Peter himself, but there's something about the confession that Peter makes that Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on. And not to like, get um, out of a jam, but I think there's a lot of both ands going on here. I think it is the confession this is Christ. It's what the church is about. The church is the visible reminder and representation that God keeps His promise to deliver His people. And when we gather in a place like this and are turned to Jesus and trust Him, it's us kind of living into the, the romance and the promise and the beauty of God coming to rescue His people. So, so it, is, it is the confession because you don't just come to the church out of tradition. You come by faith and you come saying, I need Jesus. And we're also told in the scriptures that, that the foundation of the church, it is the apostles' teaching. So there's a sense in which it's not just what Peter says, but but how he taught, how he lived his role as one who was going to explain to early followers of Jesus. And so we get some really clear texts in the scriptures that say things like in 1 Corinthians 3, that both Jesus is the foundation, and this is 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he is the rock. He's the one who has the church is built upon. But then in Ephesians 2.20, it says that it, the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And it names Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. So it's kind of a both and. The, the church is built on Jesus and the apostles' confession of and teaching of who Jesus is. The fact that he is the anointed, the one who was to come. That's probably as far as I want to go there. If you've got questions about that, you come from a background or a tradition that, that talked a lot about that, or you have kind of questions you want to process I I would love to but I think simply to say what what Peter is expressing that Jesus says I'm going to build my church on that it's that God keeps his promise and that Jesus is at the center of that Jesus is the one that actually came to actually be the fulfillment of God's promises and there's several other encouraging things in there that we'll just kind of briefly mention he says "And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church Which man do we need to hear that kind of encouragement in our day and age where there's just so many questions and so much failure and so much struggle? Like church is just hard. Many of you have a lot of jagged edges in your story as you think about the family of God either from your childhood or in recent days and and to hear in all of the humanness and all of the mess and all of the brokenness that the gates of hell won't prevail against God's church. It might prevail against certain pastors who fall. There may be local expressions that are unfaithful, but Jesus is saying, hold on, my promises are true and real. I will accomplish what I set out to do to keep my promises to make a people. So there's a kind of encouragement in that. Again, God working, we see He's the one who's drawing people to actually see God for who He is. And we see this idea here that there are keys of the kingdom that the church has been given. It's a mysterious thing, and this idea of being bound and loose, we actually see again in Chapter eighteen. So I literally am going to punt to chapter 18 on being bound and loose. But, but this idea of the keys of the kingdom, right? The metaphor is pretty simple. It's maybe mysterious, but you can just zoom out for a second. The keys are what gets you in. The keys are what open up the door. The keys are how you have, how you have access. And you have to have those keys to have access. And so if, if Jesus is saying it's the confession that he is the Messiah, and I'm giving the keys of the kingdom to the church, that's the simple gospel message of who Jesus is, what he came to do, that he's going to be explicit about here in verse 21, that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, that he was going to be buried, and that he was going to raise again. That, that message is what welcomes someone into the kingdom, and that is the only message the church has. For us to have a gospel message and a gospel call to people to hear the good news of what it means to actually come into the kingdom through Jesus. Remember early in the Sermon on the Mount that there's this narrow gate, and we said the gate is only as wide as Jesus. You don't, you don't have another way into the kingdom. It's just, it's just through him. It's another way of saying that. It's, a, it's exclusive access into the kingdom of God through this generous God who dies in our place to make a way for us to come in. So in some ways, it's very, very narrow, and the invitation is very, very broad. It's specific, and it's something beautiful that is for the whole world. And that's basically saying the church has these keys, and every time we preach the gospel, we are, we are using the keys of the kingdom. To see the gospel advance in the world around us so that people can actually come to know who God is and come into a saving faith relationship with him. That's all really beautiful. All that is from his confession there that he is the Christ, that Jesus is the one that the scriptures pointed to. So all that sounds amazing. It's a downhill slope, we're hands raised, we're yelling, we're screaming, we're celebrating, and then we hit a record scratch in verse 20. You would expect him to say, so now go. Take out those keys and go tell everybody about the kingdom and roll it out. And he says instead, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So if you thought Jesus was already a little bit odd, this verse would kind of just stand out to you. It's like, what are you doing? There's this amazing declaration. He he nails it and says who you really are. Don't you want people to know? And I think in that question, we get an answer in the next section of why Jesus said, hey, hold on. Don't quite start talking about this yet because what we'll see is that Peter knew who Jesus was as the Christ but not what the Christ was going to do to accomplish the promises of God on our behalf. Peter still had a small view of what it meant for Jesus to come as the Messiah. It was going to be enough just to be a political leader or a good teacher or somebody who's going to overthrow Rome or reestablish worship in the temple. But what Jesus is going to say is after something much, much, much deeper. So he says, don't tell anybody because you don't quite yet understand understand and this is that turning point in verse 21 so we go from the confession to confusion in verse 21 says this from that time on jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to jerusalem suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes to be killed and on the third day be raised okay if you've grown up in church that's not a shocking statement to you that's the easter story it's what the christian faith is built upon but if you're in real time in the happenings of chapter 16, this is revolutionary. And although there are hints in the Old Testament, even explicit promises that the Messiah was gonna come and die in our place from like Isaiah 53, they weren't expecting that the king was gonna come and die. They expected the king to come and, and rain down in judgment. Remember John the Baptist, even after he's watched all the miracles that Jesus does, kind of says, hey, are you really the Messiah? Because I'm in prison. I thought you were gonna come and just smite everybody. And it seems like the evil are winning. Case number one, look at me in prison as one who actually follows you. Are you really the Messiah? This idea that he would come and suffer that we just kind of talk about casually is something that actually the entire faith hinges upon. What we see is that Peter really struggles with that. So verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, I don't know what's going on in Peter's mind. I mean, He just had like the most successful moment of his life to answer the quiz show properly, get the ding, 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 and Jesus say that's the right answer. So I don't know if he's like full of adrenaline and he wants to hit the button again and say say another thing, or if he's actually exercising that idea of the authority of the kingdom and saying, hey, I will use the authority that you gave me built on this confession to actually keep these bad things from happening. Whatever's motivating Peter in that moment, Jesus sees it not as a a misplaced idea, but as something actually really dangerous, even, even demonic. So Peter takes him aside and rebukes him and says, far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. That's not the way it's going to go down. That's not what the Messiah does. That's not the God I know. That's not the God that I know what he would do. That's not the way I understand the Bible. That's not my expectations. Do any of those things sound familiar? Have you found yourself in spaces where you read something in the Bible and go like, "Hmm, I don't know about that. I don't know like, if that's God can do that or he should do that. It's not, the, it's not the God that I worship. And in that moment, you're with Peter standing there saying, Jesus, what you are clearly saying is going to happen is not what I thought was going to happen. And I'm trying to respond to it in such a way that's kind of rooted in confusion, but there's also a real danger there. Jesus is going to go on to say, this actually comes from the devil. He says, get behind me, Satan. So the rock, the confession, the one who has the keys... Now is speaking on behalf of the evil one. And you stop for a moment and go, man, what is going on? And if you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, all the way back to chapter 4, after Jesus' baptism, where God speaks from heaven in this miraculous way, you see the Father and the Spirit and the Son triunely there in that moment, giving witness and testimony that Jesus really is the Messiah. It's an amazing moment. The next scene, Jesus goes in the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days. There's a lot of symbolism there in him kind of walking the roads that Israel walked in the desert to kind of redo the people of God and have a way of redeeming them. But you see temptation in the desert. And the evil one comes and begins to whisper to Jesus in his hunger, hey, can't you take matters into your own hands and feed yourself? Don't you have agency? Shouldn't you get what you need? Shouldn't you, shouldn't you leverage your power to get what you need? Just provide food for yourself. He takes him up onto this high mountain and says, hey, doesn't God promise to love you? Shouldn't you like throw yourself off? Won't he rescue you? Don't you want to test God to see if, see if he'll come through for you like you, uh, like you think he will or like you said that he will? There's a, a testing there of kind of God's faithfulness. And then Satan says, hey, I'm going to show you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have all of this if you'll just worship me. No cost, no sacrifice, no cross, no death, no torture, no suffering, no pain. If you just take the easy way out and worship me, I'll give you everything. This idea of glory without sacrifice. So those words are familiar to Jesus. The idea that there could be a Messiah without sacrifice. That there could be a way to actually have salvation without the cross. That that our our need might not be so bad. Maybe all we need is just more influence or more power or more information. If we had that, then surely we could save ourselves or we could follow God off into glory and into some sort of power ride into the kingdom in ways that we could establish it ourselves. It's a a lie of autonomy. It's a lie of self-sufficiency. It's a lie that God doesn't have to actually make a sacrifice for us to be right with Him. We could do it some other way. All that's actually loaded in, and remember, this is the garden lie. So back in Genesis, Chapter 3, where God set up the world and has some parameters there. And the whisper is in that moment, hey, if God's put any restrictions on you, He doesn't love you. He doesn't know what you need. You should take matters into your own hands. This this lie of there could be glory without the death. There could be salvation without this deep cost because what's wrong with you isn't so bad. The restrictions in the garden, like they don't make a whole lot of sense. You don't actually have to follow after that. You can do whatever you want because god actually doesn't really know you're the one who knows man is that a familiar lie think about the places where you find yourself tempted to engage in things that you know aren't healthy for you you've seen lots of people burn themselves down you've actually practiced it for decades or maybe years or weeks or moments and you've seen it come up bankrupt and yet it's still so compelling peter articulates for us a confusion and we can both see Jesus as anointed and special and God's promised one and then want to redefine what that means according to our own terms. To take God himself and actually put him into our own box or our own definition to say what he can and can't do. Like This is what the scriptures say God's people are always tempted to do. When they come to the promised land and then quickly turn to false idols, That what they're doing in that space is saying, yeah, yeah, I mean, sure, we need God for deliverance, but we can also have these other things. And it's not like everything is God's. It's like God gets some of it, and the rest of it we can actually pursue on our own. There's a confusion here that Peter kind of articulates and defines for us. that gives us permission to ask, hey, where have we defined God in our own terms? Where have we affirmed Jesus and then redefined what it means to actually follow after him? And so Jesus says, actually, you're a hindrance to me. And talk about a play on words from like stone and rock from Peter's name. This is a stumbling block. You're a stumbling block. I talked about a rock that I was going to build the church on. This idea here of like glory without sacrifice or salvation without the cross is actually a stumbling block. For you're not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. You're not thinking in terms of what God says is true. You're running your reality through your own experience and you're defining God through that experience. Rather than hearing God's words and letting that define your experience, you're focusing on the things of man and you're holding that up as the lens that you're seeing God through and there's things that don't quite fit that you can explain away. There's stuff about that that you don't have to submit to because it's not your preferences. You actually are redefining things according to the way that you see God through your own eyes a better version of yourself, a, a more powerful version of yourself. Someone sure show that you need, but maybe more like a mascot than a master. Maybe somebody who actually comes to kind of help you and give you advice, not actually rescue and save you. So, so Peter is confused, and I think it gives permission just to ask, I mean, where have we been confused? Where, where are there places that we actually have struggled to understand what it means to relate to God on his own terms? not on ours. What Jesus does in this next section is defines the terms for us. And he just says, hey, let me tell you what it means to actually come to me. And the point of this text is that we have to come to Jesus on his own terms, not on ours. But the good news is his terms are way better than our terms. He's going to labor to kind of articulate why This death and cost is worth it. He's going to say the terms of how I came and why I came and what I came to do actually are way, way better for you, even though you wouldn't want to limit it down to your own terms. You have to come on my terms. So let's look at the cost in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The terms of followership The terms of discipleship, the terms of seeing Jesus the right way as the Messiah is to actually come and do two things. To deny yourself and then to follow. To say no to yourself and then to say yes to Jesus. To stop actually pursuing salvation and joy and power and approval your own way on your own terms and actually turning to God and saying, I will follow you to take me to life. I will trust you to bring me to the place where I'll actually be saved. I'll trust you to be the one who is my identity and my hope, and I'm going to stop building an identity on my own. There's a lot of conversation about what it means to actually deny yourself or die to yourself. Let me just say a couple things up front. It doesn't mean that you lose kind of your personality, or it doesn't mean the essence of who you are goes away. Far from it, actually. it actually means the ways you've been pretending and accommodating and adapting who you really are, to fit in the world around you, that's what dies and falls away. The Scripture calls it the flesh. It's the ways you've lived apart from God's grace to prove yourself, to protect yourself, to care for yourself, to to be a space where you're actually earning an identity or or some sort of reputation or getting some sort of power or some sort of pleasure. All of that quest is what the Spirit, um, by God's grace, calls the flesh. To say things like anger and malice and wrath and slander, those aren't just like bad things. Those are what happen when you're trying to protect yourself. Those are the ways you leverage in the world around you. And Jesus is saying, you have to actually stop. You have to stop trying to define yourself and save yourself. You actually have to die to yourself. And the scripture says things like a seed. It gives it a metaphor. You've all seen this and when the acorns fall and your yard's full of these little whirly birds and all those things and then... Weeks or months later, these little sprouts start to come up, but there's some that like hit the pavement and the acorn just got crushed and nothing ever happened there. But the ones that hit the soil, that seed dies, it actually opens up, it actually takes the heart outer shell that meant to protect it, that fades away and now a new life is born. God uses that kind of metaphor to talk about dying to ourselves. It's not just like the the pattern of self-denial or sacrifice, because we take denial and think in terms of like a diet. Deny yourself sugar. Deny yourself carbs. Deny yourself chocolate, and we go. Yeah, yeah, God just wants me to try harder and do better, and then we take like taking up our cross and following as like just enduring difficult coworkers and things that are not the way we wish they would be, and we just say, man, I got to bear my own cross. We've we've actually really limited down what this is. This is actually a denial of you building an identity for yourself apart from God, and it just makes sense that you couldn't do that and worship Him. You can't worship two gods. You can't navigate things like that and he says you actually have to deny yourself and come and follow me that is the cost but there's also a cost to not following right so we don't have just like a neutral choice it's both to follow him or to not follow him those are the things that are set in front of us so the cost is everything the cost is dying to yourself so you actually would follow him as he says he really is not on your own terms And what's amazing is this passage sets us up to think about lots of other passages that we're going to hit in the book of Matthew, because Jesus is about to turn to talk about what it looks like to live this life that is denying ourselves. He's going to talk about our sexuality. He's going to talk about forgiving our enemies, talk about stewarding our entire lives. And if you don't have in your heart the idea that Jesus is the one who we're looking to to rescue and save and define us, but you're still looking to the things of man to define. You're you looking to money and power and position and relationships and pleasure and comfort and control. If you're looking to those things you'll never be able to follow him with the way he wants to take you with the rest of the book. Because the cost benefit analysis just won't make sense. But if you actually give up yourself in ways that actually look to him as your savior then he says three different ways why it's worth it. He lays out this cost for us and then he's going to use the word for three different times in verse 25, 26, and 27 to give like an explanation of why you should put all of your resources in this space. Why this is what actually benefits you. Why when you do an ROI, you actually come out in a space where you say, yes, I will die to myself. That is the best thing I could do. Look with me in verse 25 on this idea of cost. He gives three reasons why. He says this, follow me for whoever will save his life, will lose it. If you want to hold on to your life, you can't. You actually lose it. You don't have the capacity to actually define yourself, save yourself, make yourself. okay. you can't make yourself righteous through enough of what the world promises you. Anybody who would save his own life, who would seek to hold on to it, will lose it. Whatever loses life for my sake will find it, he says. The first reason is that you can't actually have what you want. You can't actually build this life the way you want to in ways that would actually fully satisfy. And you know this. It's what midlife crisis is made of. It's what kind of those retirement years when you look back and go, dang, did I spend my life the way I I needed to or wanted to or longed for? There's spaces where we pursue things apart from Jesus, thinking they will fully satisfy, thinking they'll add to our satisfaction, and they always, always, always come up bankrupt. He says those temporal things can't hold the weight of, of your whole life. It just actually won't work. You, you can't save your life. You'll actually wind up losing it. The only way to actually have real life is to give it up, he says. In verse 26, he says, secondly, for, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So we asked two rhetorical questions that are meant to set us up to say, well, well nothing. What would it profit a man if he had everything, if he exercised all of his leverage, all of his power, all of his influence, got all the pleasure that everything like the book of Ecclesiastes lays out for us, had it all, but he lost his soul. What would that actually profit a man? So you do ROI when it comes to, again, chastity and charitable giving and things at work and your relationships. You're constantly doing that, but there's a kind of ROI of the soul. Like, What is the return on the investment of a life lived apart from God? he says, actually, nothing would actually rescue your soul. And you could gain everything else, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter for eternity. It wouldn't even matter for now. It doesn't have the power to hold you. You could gain everything else, he says. You could kind of pursue all of it, but you, you actually can't have what you want to do on your own. It will never actually satisfy. So then third in verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory Of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So, the third thing Jesus says is that there's actually something that costs you everything. You have to give an account for how you've lived your life. He says the angels are going to come, and the Son of Man is going to come, and he's going to actually take account for where someone lived their life, and he's going to repay each person according to what he's done. And what he's saying in this moment is like it's not just an idea, it's not just an ideological thing, it actually has eternal consequences. That a life lived trying to build your own identity apart from God actually earns you the wrath of God. The return on investment of that kind of life actually separates you from God. So Jesus in this moment to help us see what's going on, help us see why he came, why he had to actually die, is because what was broken about us was so deep. Only the death of God himself was enough to actually fix it. We couldn't actually get enough information or enough trying harder enough, like working at something. We needed something much, much, much deeper. And that space, him kind of referencing the next life and giving an account means we need someone to stand in our place to bear the weight and wrath of our sin. We actually can't do enough. We actually have to see him as the one who actually would do enough on our behalf to make a way for us to be right with God. And he just goes on to say, hey, the kingdom is coming. Many of you are going to see this kingdom coming. This is a pretty complicated phrase in verse 28. I think we see the kingdom coming in the next passage with the transfiguration. You see it with the resurrection. You see it with Pentecost. You see it as the church begins to grow. You see the kingdom coming and growing in light of what God said he was going to do through Jesus in the life of his people to actually redeem them. So he's saying you're going to see the truth of this kingdom. It's real. It's visible. You can see it as a way to actually give evidence to the idea that the way Jesus calls us to follow him is the only way. Peter confesses he's the Christ, but he's confused about what it actually means for Jesus to be the Christ. And so Jesus just is explicit. For him to be the Christ is to die in our place, which takes all of these motivations and gives them a foundation to say, my even longing isn't that I would do enough or sacrifice enough or deny myself enough so that I could be saved. It's in the one who denied himself for me. Jesus calls us to follow after him, to follow his divine pattern of self-sacrifice, but not because that's what would earn our salvation. It's in his death and burial and resurrection that our salvation is purchased and earned. And seeing him as our only hope is the way that we actually then save our lives. We take communion every week as a reminder that there's nothing we could do apart from what Christ has done for us to make us whole or to save us or to rescue us. And it's a, a way of saying what this passage says, that I'm denying myself. I'm not looking to myself to save me. I'm looking to Jesus and what he did through his broken body and shed blood. That's the way that I have to actually follow. And he graciously is drawing me to himself to rescue. The, the gate is wide enough for you to come through the sacrifice of Christ to actually Be saved. Jesus is turning in the gospel to being real explicit so that we're not confused. And so this morning, as we prepare to take communion, I want to just ask, like, how do you think about investment? How do you think about the return on your investment? How do you think about what's most valuable? And you take some time to actually see your life in light of that question and ask, have you looked at other things that aren't as valuable, that can't actually give you what they promise? And you see the effects of that all around you. Can you actually then ask God to help you see things through his eyes, not you through your eyes to see him? Help, help him see, help him, help him help you see him through what he says, which is this sacrificial death that he has on our behalf. I think that's beautiful news. And it feels heavy because the cost is so great, but, but don't lose the fact that this God who's teaching us this was willing to die in your place because he loves you. Like he went all the way to the cross because he wanted you. And he wanted to actually make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. And those who trust him receive that. That's what it means to actually deny yourself, is to actually move towards where real life happens. So, Christians, I would invite you to take communion. The way we do it is we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. There'll be service here in the front, and a gluten free station over here to my right, your left, and some individual cups if that's more comfortable for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, there's some prayers on your bulletin that would give you some language to pray and just ask god to help speak to you so you could actually move towards him in this moment even if you're not yet ready to trust him as savior would you ask him to speak to you and help you as you wrestle with different questions let me pray for us and we'll take communion and then we'll sing together jesus thank you for who you are and what you've done thanks for the ways that you've done it would you help us to trust you and believe thanks that you took the time to clarify our confusion and now in this moment would you speak to us? of where that confusion still exists. Help us to come to you on your terms because your terms are so much better than our terms. And we see that in what you gave us in your sacrificial death. So stir joy and worship even while we're quieting our hearts to, to think about what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, come when you're ready.